You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Uh, before we do anything else and start walking through this together, let's, um, let's pray. Uh, uh, Father, um, <laughs> coming into the Christmas season, for some of us, it, it's really exciting. Uh, we look forward to it, but I'm also fully cognizant of the reality that for some, it's all they can do just to get through it. Uh, because of the busyness, because of uh, the pressure it puts on us financially, time pressure, cooking things pressure, getting the right gifts pressure, uh, seeing people that perhaps, perhaps we only see at Christmas time, that adds pressure. Lots of reasons, um, and some of them very good reasons uh, that, that this season brings and why it affects us the way it does. But my hope, my prayer, as we move into December this week, is that those things uh, wouldn't take away the sweet joy of and the marvel of God coming to us in flesh and being born in a manger as a baby. The, the picture of humility, that, that salvation comes packaged in great humility, is one that I pray would land on soft hearts. And the marvel of it would be afresh this season for all of us. So that as we do go through some of the difficulty that this season brings, we do what we would do so with, with joy um, and again, marvel in our hearts and our minds. And as we go through things today, this uh, difficult at times topic, but very relevant topic, I pray that you would use me in spite of me, grant me much grace and courage and help all of us as we wrestle with this. Uh, together. And I pray for these things in Jesus, your, your sweet, sweet name. Amen. So lots to do today. Um, so let's get right at it. Jump right in. Let's read verse one. Um, Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So we are presented with a dilemma right out of the gate. Paul writes that it's actually reported. That phrase actually reported meaning it means that it's out there. It's out there for public consumption. There's no secret. The world knows as it were that something is taking place in the church. Um, what's, the, what's the issue? Well, a man in the church is in a sexual relationship with his uh, father's wife, uh, a Jewish way of speaking of a stepmother. Um, but I came across one Jewish scholar this week who writes that the way this is written in the original language suggests that the father was still alive. Um, so this man is having a sexual relationship with a woman whom his dad had been married to and his dad may still be around. That's the issue. If you're a little bit creeped out by that, me too, it should. Um, it, it's certainly not one that uh, many, if any of us, have ever had to deal with before. Paul refers to this incestuous relationship as sexual immorality. Um, of a kind, he writes, 
that's not even spoken or tolerated uh, among pagans. Pagans, what's that? Pagans refers to non-Christians. Uh, the word pagan originally spoke of people who lived in the country, and because they lived in the country, they weren't privy to the things going on in the city, so they were sort of ignorant because of it, and that certainly included the religion of the day, but the word was borrowed to refer to those not in the faith. That's the word pagan. So uh, that's who Paul is speaking of here, this non-Christian community, this not even tolerated among them. Sexual immorality, that phrase, one word in the Greek, it's an un umbrella term. It's the word porneia in the Greek, shows up about 25 times in the New Testament. Some of your Bibles may translate it with the word fornication. If sexual immorality is an umbrella term, then the relationship between this man in the church and a woman who it seems is not in the church is an example of a type of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among non-Christians, at least at the time. Today, I'm not so sure. Verse 1, which is where we're going to spend our time uh, this morning, and then come back and take a look at the whole chapter in January. But verse 1 confronts us with a question. And that question is, what is sexual immorality? If it's an umbrella term, I mean, how would you define it? What are those sexual practices that you would call immoral? As I mentioned, sexual immorality comes from a word in the Greek, porneia, which literally means selling off. And it's where we get the word pornography today. Pornography is the literal selling off of one's body for a profit. You, you take some money, you sell your body, so people can look at your body. But the word wasn't used that way then. It didn't speak of pornography then. We've taken it and used it for that idea. But then it was used more broadly to speak of all sexual acts outside of biblical guidelines, where you sell your body off, as it were, for, for less than it's worth. What is your body worth, by the way? What would someone be willing to pay for your body? Keep that question in mind as we wrap up uh, a little bit later. Some verses that speak against porneia, sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18, we'll come to this in a, about a month or so. Flee from sexual immorality. There it is, there's the word porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Uh, Ephesians 5.3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. One more, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God. So if you've ever wanted to know what God's will was for your life, well, it's at least this, your sanctification that you abstain from porneia, that you abstain from sexual immorality. But here's the problem, and I can give you more verses, but that just kind of gives you a little representation. It still doesn't answer the question. What constitutes sexual immorality? Uh, here's my homework assignment for you this week, okay? This week, go down Main Street, Main and 14th, stop in front of J.J. Bean, stand on the sidewalk, and as people walk by, say, excuse me, how would you define sexual immorality? Okay, that's your homework assignment this week. I expect to see you there. 
Now, if anybody stopped and they attempted to answer the question, I think at least for a, a short burst of time, maybe a longer burst of time, they would struggle with the answer. What, what, what is sexual immorality? How would, how would they answer? Just the average man or woman walking up and down Main Street, how would they answer the question? Well, after a period of thinking about it, I think people would come up with certain examples. Incest, like what's going on here, would certainly be one. I think most people would go, yeah, that's immoral. Rape, certainly. Rape, I mean, that's the whole Me Too movement, right? Any, any forced sexual advance was the whole Me Too movement, and I agree, rape certainly would fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality. Adultery, I, I, again, I think most of our world would say, yeah, if you're married, you shouldn't be sleeping around with somebody who's not your wife or husband. In, um, sex with children, again, I think people would agree that sex with children is sexually immoral activity. But even that line is getting fuzzier today, by the way. The sexualization of our kids today seems to be a high priority for some. And going back to adultery, how, how, how do you define it? What, what's your definition of, of adultery? Like I said, I'm going to camp essentially in verse 1 today, and I'm going to do that because... Because the current moral and sexual revolution today is moving at warp speed, and I think many are troubled by it. I address this topic in part, not totally. I'm going to hit some other things today back in our Ephesians series, but I want to come back to it. I mean, today you can't stream a show. You can't go to a sporting event. You can't listen to a politician speak without some direct or at least passive, uh, passive excuse me, reference to it. Walk down, drive down any street, and you'll see images on bus stops and, and on billboards promoting today's fast-moving sexual and moral revolution. Additionally, as it relates to the church, you and me, I think there's much confusion in the church today. today. And I have a role, not mine alone, but I have a role and a call to equip the saints. That's you. And so I want to consider two questions today. The first, how does the Bible define sexual immorality? And then secondly, when we end, how should we respond to it in a way that models Jesus? So those are the two questions. And to answer them, I want to lay out some parameters first by asking some questions that you may think, why are you asking these questions? Stick with me, okay? There's a reason why I'm going to ask these questions on the front end. First question, do you believe in God? Now, I would assume most of you do, or else you wouldn't be here. You have at least some inkling at the very worst about a belief in, in God. So do you believe in God? For if you do believe in the existence of God, it should shape how you view the world and how you respond to it. The opposite is also true. If you don't believe in God, it will shape how you view the world. It will shape how you live your life. There's no God, I'm gonna live this way. There is a God, that should shape, again, how you live your life. Second question, what is God like? 
Is he more than just a power out there? Is he more than just an it? Is he more than just like gravity, just a power that exists? Or is it more personal than that? Is God knowable? And has God revealed anything about himself? Really important question. The Christian faith's answer is that he is knowable and he has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in three ways primarily. The first way is through creation. Uh, Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1.20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In what? In the things that have been made. So the visible makes the invisible known, at least in part. So in what we see around us in the plant kingdom, in the animal kingdom, in other human beings, in the sciences like biology and chemistry and so on, we can capture a sense of what God is like. We get this when we take in a sunset. When we look at the petals of a rose. When we see a baby in the womb. When we consider the power of the atom when we observe a hummingbird's wings, when we consider the wonder of the eye, God is made known. This is referred to as general revelation. Everybody experiences general revelation. But then there is something called special revelation. And this refers to God's word to us. And God's word has come into come to us in two ways. God's written word, what we call the Bible, and God's word made flesh, whom we call Jesus. In his word, written and manifested, God has revealed himself to us in very detailed ways, allowing us to know what kind of God he is. And what's revealed in God's written word and word made flesh is that God is personal. He's relational, and he's loving, and he's good, and he's compassionate, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and he's ever-present, and so on. But what God's word also reveals is that he is God, and we are not. He is creator, and we are, are his creation, created hear me on this, created by him, created through him, and created for him. So the Bible reveals, the Bible answers two of the most important questions that any human being who's serious at all should be asking. How, why am I here? And what am I here for? The Bible answers that, and the word made flesh answers that. That the Bible reveals this to us and Jesus manifested this for us. Lots of revelation and too much is given. Much is required. Back to God's written word and another question. What's your view of the Bible? Christianity holds that the Bible is God's spirit-inspired word. That's the Christian faith's view of the written word, all of it. 
And therefore, because it, has, it is God's written word, it has ultimate authority over the church. To which I know some would say, doesn't God have ultimate authority over the church? And the answer is yes, absolutely. But God will not do anything contrary to his written word because it's his written word and nor should we. It is to be our plumb line. It is to be our guide. All words are tested by the word. That's why Paul says in Galatians 1, even if an angel shows up and gives you a different word, let the angel be accursed. That's why Luke in the book of Acts uh, commends the, the Bereans in, in the Berean church because they took what capital A apostle Paul said to them and tested it by the written word of God. Uh, there are a lot of ways uh, to point out the unique authority of the Bible, but none are more telling than in how Jesus viewed it. How, how did the word made flesh speak of the word that is written? Well, the answer is that he saw every curve and every dot on every letter of God's written word as God's very word. That's how he viewed it. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he, he says this, you can read it behind me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What's a dot? Well, we know what a dot is. What's an iota? Well, we use the word iota when we say things like, I don't believe an iota of what you're telling me. Like, I don't believe even the smallest of what you're telling me. And Jesus says, that dot will be accomplished. That iota, in the written word, what we would call the Old Testament, will be accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away before all of it. All of it is accomplished before that. Have you ever heard of a red letter Bible? Red letter Bible, all, all the words of Jesus are in red letters. You may have that Bible. I'm, I'm going to really hurt your feelings in about three seconds, okay? <laughs> Do you know who wouldn't like red letter Bibles? Jesus. Jesus wouldn't like red letter Bibles at all. Why? Because Jesus considered every word as God's very word. No more or no less than God's word than any other are all the words in it. And when it is read... God is speaking. In Matthew 19, a text we'll come back to later, Jesus refers to Moses' written word as God speaking. Just one example. Jesus speaks of God's word as being truth. Not true. God's word isn't true. Is it true? Yes, it's true. But it's bigger than that. It's truth. It's that by which everything else is measured by. Your word is truth, God says, Jesus says in his prayer to his father, God. In Matthew 22, Jesus defends the reality of the resurrection coming out of Exodus 3 with the tense of a verb. And there are many times where Jesus rebukes his opposition with the question, have you not read So the question for every follower of Jesus is what? 
do you see the written word the same way Jesus does? And if you don't, why not? What do you know that Jesus didn't? And, and what do you believe, and what don't you believe, excuse me, that Jesus did? Why am I beginning this way? I'm beginning this way because every concession the church has made over the centuries has come when the authority of God's written word is no longer held up as the authority in the church. Every single one. I, I, be, I begin here because if you believe in a God who has revealed himself in the written word and word made flesh, and you hold to the written word as Jesus does, then it must guide how you view, view the world. And therefore, it must guide how you view things like marriage and singleness and parenting and, and kids and life and, and death and creation and work and rest and so on. It should be the matrix that all things, including how you view sex, should be filtered through. Because the reality is, if you, in fact, did go down this week, Maine and 14, front of J.J. Beam, and you did stop people and ask them for their definition of sexual, sexual immorality, they would all eventually have an opinion. Every single one of them. They would have a grid. They would have a line. They would have a sandbox that they live in. Because here's the reality. Everyone does. Christian and non-Christian alike, everyone is opinionated. We all have opinions. We must have opinions because we live our lives. And our lives demand that we come into contact with whatever we come into contact and go, how am I going to live in this? So the question then becomes, what do you base your opinion on? So with these parameters in place, how does the Bible, God's written word, define sexual immorality and what does the word made flesh reveal to us as well? Well, let's start with the positives, okay? Because the church too often talks about sex in negative ways, taboo ways, um, and it actually really affects people um, that grow up in that sort of culture where they have to flick a switch one day and go from negatives and taboos to now I've got to live this out, it really affects, especially women in the church. Books have been written on it. Studies have been, uh, have under, been undergone regarding it. So what's the positives about sex? Well, to begin, the Bible teaches that sex was created by God. It's his design. He came up with it. And therefore, it's good. Because he's good. It's good and it's right and it's lovely. It's also powerful. Um, one of human beings' most powerful drives, perhaps second only to the drive to survive. That's how powerful sex is. And he created sex for three reasons, primarily. One is for procreation. We are to be people who are fruitful and multiply. That's one reason. But second, for in intimacy and enjoyment. God gives good gifts and he gives gifts for us to enjoy. God in his grace 
concentrated, more nerve endings at the head of the penis and the clitoris than anywhere else in the human body. Not more nerve endings in those two body parts, but more concentrated nerve endings in those two body parts. Praise God. Like, praise God. Thank you, Lord, for concentrated nerve endings. Right? You're not even sure you should laugh at that. That's a good thing. According to the renowned Cleveland Clinic, the clitoris exists for only one reason. For the woman to experience sexual pleasure. He's a good God. And sex is good. And it's right. And it's lovely. And three, God created sex as a depiction of his love and intimacy for us. Oftentimes, God describes his relationship with us, not in relational terms, but sexual terms. And therefore, sexual intimacy shouldn't be a mere physical experience, but a spiritual one, a worshipful one. But I I don't say that to downplay the physical because we are physical beings and therefore we are to enjoy things physically. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Don't let your neo-gnosticism get in the way of your feeling regarding the physical. Physical creation is good. But, But what are the parameters that God has given us to experience sexual intimacy? what's, What's the sandbox for us that we're to live in? Well, the answer is in a marriage between a male husband and a female wife. I feel the deep need to be very clear today in my language. And therefore, all other kinds of sexual experiences fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality. God said in Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Those are the players in a marriage. A man, a husband, and a wife, a woman, united in marriage, and then they become one flesh. And in that order, and in the sex act, when the penis enters the vagina, the couple acts out physically, what has taken place spiritually. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 19 when going back to Genesis 2 and saying, have you not read? There's the question, the oft-asked question of Jesus. Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Said Jesus, Uh, there are those today um, that you will hear say things like, Jesus never spoke into sexual constructs. You'll hear people say, when Jesus talked about things in his world, he deferred, he placated to the culture of the time. With all due respect, they are very wrong. Jesus made it clear when pushing back into his culture and going back to the beginning, pre-sin, pre-fall, to God's design in Genesis 1 and 2, saying that marriage is between a male and a female and sexual intimacy is to be experienced in the marriage context. To see it any other way is to ignore the very clear reading of God's written word. I am not exaggerating when I say this. 
texts that people are taking in God's written word and, and making them say something that is not clearly seen, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, would be like me going to a command like thou shalt not steal, teaching through it and convincing you by the end that stealing is good. And I'm not exaggerating. It requires that kind of hermeneutic. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What this also means then, Midtown, what this also means is that sex is not only God's design, but so too is marriage. He created it. It's his idea. He designed it and he set the parameters for it. Government didn't do that. Government didn't come up with marriage. Nations didn't come up with marriage, and nor did they define marriage for us. They may call their definition of marriage, but marriage it is not. It's a relationship, certainly. No, absolutely no disagreement with that. It's just not marriage. And since, since he set the parameters for it, why did he create marriage? Why did he design it? For companionship, certainly. It's not good for men, women to be alone. That's certainly one reason, but also for multiplication, as I said before, and a display of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. Things like procreation and that picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church, only achievable in a marriage between a husband and a wife and a male and a female. He also created marriage and the family to be the foundation, foundational unit that, that society is built on. What you need to understand about God as he reveals it to be coming out of the Genesis account is that God works small to big. He doesn't work big to small. He works small to big. This is called the rule or the principle of subsidiarity if you want to destroy a society, history proves and demonstrates. If you want to destroy a society, destroy God's design of marriage in the family. God's role in the design of marriage and sex is also true as it relates to gender. God created us male and female. He created us, he defines us, and he calls us to image him. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God is imaged in males and females and all other so-called genders make mockery of him. I know I'm going to lose some of you when I say what I'm about to say. For some of you, maybe your first time here. For some of you, it may be your last time. Um, it's also dishonoring to God when by giving our pronouns, we suggest that there are more than two genders we can identify by. It is less than a subtle affirmation of that which doesn't glorify our creator who made us male and female. There is no other transient gender. Uh, we, we talk today about not being persecuted much in the West, in the church, but I wonder if it's because 
we do all we can to make sure we're not. And if that means putting a couple of pronouns down to keep me from being persecuted, then I'll put some pronouns down. So sexual immorality from a biblical standpoint is any sexual experience outside of a marriage relationship between a husband and wife, a man and a woman. This also includes acting out in lust and fantasy and using another to satisfy our sexual cravings. As Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, him, in his, her heart. And in this, we go back to that question I asked earlier, how would you define adultery? Here, we have a biblical definition of adultery. Remember, we're just asking the question, what does the Bible say about this? Uh, that it's not adultery according to the scriptures, the written word is that it's not simply a spouse cheating on a spouse, but any sexual act where we play out our sexual fantasies with anyone not our spouse, whether we're married or not, whether we're with them or not. And they're just an image on a screen. Again, that is why Jesus says in Matthew 19 that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. All of this leads to the second question that we're going to consider today far more quickly than the first. How do we respond to this? Right? How do we respond? How, how do we respond in a way that models the word that became flesh? How do we respond to the written word in a, word that mo- in a way that models Jesus? Well, let me offer four ways rather quickly. The first, inwardly. We respond inwardly. What I mean by this is that it's not the role of the church to tell the non-Christian community how to live. That's not our role. This message I am giving today is a message for the church. Look at what, here's why I say that. Take a look at what Paul writes in verses 9 to 12. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter, that's a former letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Our our call in the church for sexual purity is for those who call themselves a brother or sister in Christ. That's our call. Our concern is for our brother and sister in Christ. Our concern for the non-Christian community is that they come to Christ. That's our message. Uh, This doesn't mean that we ignore what our kids are learning in school, for example. This doesn't mean that we ignore the rights of the unborn. This doesn't mean that we don't defend a, a biblical definition of marriage. It just means that our main proclamation to the world isn't to tell them what we're against, as we've heard recently here. Uh, Madeleine Lengel, she writes, you can read it behind me, we do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, 
by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all of their hearts to know the source of it. When I talk about an inward uh, response, uh, I also mean that we be aware of our own susceptibility towards sin. Uh, Galatians 6.1, brothers. So this is Paul writing to the church, brothers in Christ, brothers, sisters. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, her, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we need to have a clear sense of our our own tendencies and temptations. I also believe that we in the church, in the church, inward response, that we in the church must recognize that we often, too often, make an idol out of marriage. And even worse than that, if there could be such a thing, is wrongly suggest that marriage will remove the sexual battle that comes with singleness and the call to sexual purity. When we get to chapter 7, we'll be there sometime, probably February. Paul talks a lot about marriage, talks a lot about sex. Over the next few chapters, this is going to be a common theme over the next few chapters. When we get to chapter 7, Paul frames sex not as a cure. It's not a cure. But as a call to service and giving to one's spouse. That's how he talks about it. But there's more. While married, sex may fulfill certain needs. But those needs can also be left unfulfilled. Two, please hear me on this, to our spiritual benefit. In other words, sex is good, but like marriage, it is not ultimate. And this is where I agree with those who who today and over the last number of years, criticized the sexual purity culture of the church. Am I not for sexual purity? Obviously, I'm for sexual purity. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm with those who criticize because it has made abstinence and marriage the savior. And they are not. Jesus is. Uh, I agree with uh, someone named Hannah Anderson who writes, for sexual lust cannot be satiated by marriage alone, especially if that marriage is itself built on lust, consumption, and control. Instead, only a particular kind of marriage can satisfy lust, one in which both parties lay down their rights and submit to God and each other. The only way to deal with lust is to deal with lust. Lust is a heart problem. Lust isn't, I don't have somebody to sleep with problem. That's not the issue. The issue is our hearts. That's why most men I talk to today who have porn habits are married. And there's someone lying next to them that they can have sex with. 
and they choose not to. And instead, they go to their computer or their phone. For us to cure lust, and this isn't only a men issue. I know women deal with this as well. I get that. But we have to go after the heart and stop promising something that marriage doesn't promise, and stop promising something that abstinence doesn't promise, stop promising something that sex doesn't promise. All these things are important things, but the answer is Jesus. What's more important than my kids getting married? Their love of Jesus. And if they have a love of Jesus and they remain single, praise God. Praise God. couple other responses. Sorry for yelling. <laughs> yelling. I'm not angry. Holy Ghost filled. Second, we need to respond not only inwardly, but sympathetically. Um, this is really a call for us in the church as well, but it's for everyone. We need to be sympathetic towards one another. We have a great high priest, right, who sympathizes with our weaknesses um, with some of those weaknesses that he sympathizes with, being sexual in nature. And therefore, if he who is perfect sympathizes with us, who are we not to with each other? And, and remember, we may not share the same types of weaknesses, but we do share weakness. Verse 11, the verse I read to you just a couple of minutes ago, groups greed right alongside of sexual immorality. For example, and we also need to be reminded by Jesus and his interaction with the woman at the well that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 4 to see people not by their sin, but by their thirst that their sin depicts and their brokenness. I have a pine tree in my backyard. I, I want to say this as gently as I can. I hate my pine tree. I just hate with a deep hate that could warm prairie provinces all winter. That's how deep my hatred for my pine tree is. Why do I hate my pine tree? Pine needles fall everywhere. Man. And one of the things that I've discovered about pine needles is they have a high acidic level. And when they get into your grass, they change the alkaline level of your dirt. It's tough to grow grass. Just take my word for it. I've done a deep dive. I've Googled it. <laughs> Secondly, pine needles are needles. And especially in the summer when it's hot and they get kind of baked out and you want to frolic in your backyard like we all like to do, right? Frolic and run around in our bare feet. They hurt you because they're needles and I don't like them. They also get in the gutters and I'm the gutter cleaner in my family. Um, and I don't like cleaning gutters and they're always constantly filling my gutters. But there's one major reason, even more than that, why I don't like my pine tree. I actually hate my pine tree. And that is right next to my pine tree, there's a cedar hedge. And, and the cedar hedge, over time, because it's so close to the pine tree, it's begun to do this, grow out, like at a 45, 50, even 60 degree angle, breaking itself. And that's not good because the cedar hedge, it, it gives me privacy in the backyard. And I like that because in the summer when I tan, I don't want anybody seeing me because that's an image you just don't need to have. It's nasty, right? You don't want to have that image burnt into your brain. Take years of counseling, it'll ruin you. And I want to protect the world from me. And so what I did, what I have done, is I called a horticulturalist. Had him come over and I said, take my pine tree down. And he said, you know you live in Vancouver, right? I said, yeah. He said, no, our, our city loves trees. And, and this will never be taken down, ever. 
Um, I said, well, you got to take it down because the roots of the pine tree are causing my hedge to move away from it and break it. It's living in brokenness <laughs> by the evil pine tree. And he said to me, he said, you're a pastor, right? And I said, yeah. I said, stick to the Bible. Because, <laughs> because he said, the hedge isn't going away from the pine tree because of the roots of the pine tree, because of the darkness of the pine tree. Because the branches are covering the hedge. Those evil pine needle-filled branches are covering the hedge. So do you know what the hedge does? It bends itself to get the sun. I said, okay, Mr. Horticulturist, keep preaching the gospel to me. I'm with you. Keep preaching the gospel to me. And I asked him, I said, does the hedge get up in the morning, consciously say, I'm going to bend myself, I'm going to break myself to get the sun? He said, no, obviously not. It's built into it. It doesn't know it needs the sun, but it wants the sun. It wants to get out of the darkness. And even if that means getting broken in the process, it'll do it. So I thanked him for the sermon illustration because that is our world. Our, our world is living in darkness. And because we have been created by God, whether we realize it or not, we want something, crave something that only the sun can satisfy. But we choose lesser things that break us. But they shouldn't define us. What should define us is Jesus. And when we talk to people, because we know about the sun, when we talk to people, we don't identify them by their brokenness. We identify them by what their brokenness reveals. They want something that only the sun can realize for them. By the way, if you ever want to come by my house <laughs> in the middle of the night and take out that pine tree, <laughs> if I see you in my window doing it, I will just turn around like this. <laughs> Your secret will be safe with me. A couple more really quickly. Uh, my time is more than done. We need to respond sympathetically, inwardly, thirdly, graciously. Gender dysphoria is very real. It's very real. I have worked and walked and talked and counseled and prayed and cried with people in ministry who have lived, continue to live with gender dysphoria. Same-sex attraction, obviously very real, but very real with those who love, with, love Jesus as well. It's a very real, real common discussion item. It has been over the years with me. An addiction to porn is very real. Having no desire for sex at all is also very real. We are all born broken. And sin impacts all things, and that certainly includes our sexuality, both physically and psychologically. And therefore, the church must provide room. Our CGs and Bible studies must provide room. Our one-on-ones must provide room for people to share their brokenness, yours and theirs, theirs and yours. We must be a place where we weep with those who weep and provide companionship and family when they're not able to be realized elsewhere. But please remember when I talk about grace, grace offers forgiveness of sin, number one, 
And I need, I need to make sure that I get this again. I know my time is more than done, but the guilt and the shame that comes with sexual sin is, is huge, but God's grace is huger. And he's faithful and just because of Jesus and his promises to his word that he will forgive us our sin. No sin is too big. So God's grace offers forgiveness of sin. God gives strength to overcome sin, but God's grace never grants permission to sin. That's not grace. Grace is to lead people to Jesus, to be strengthened by Jesus, never to grease a path away from Jesus. And lastly, we need to respond courageously. More than ever, the church needs a Gideon's army. Those who aren't timid, but full of spirit-infused courage, love, and self-control. Those who don't shrink back, those who don't syncretize, and those who don't affirm what God doesn't. As I close, and I know I need to, and we respond, I asked earlier, how much is your body worth? For some in our world today, it's worth 800 bucks to do a sex scene for some porn platform. That's the going rate today, 800 bucks. Maybe you're willing to give up your body for a couple of drinks and a nice dinner and at least a couple hours, hours of companionship. Maybe a body's worth no more to you than a couple of clicks on your computer and a few minutes on Pornhub. That, that's, that's our world. And that's the value our world puts on your body and mine. And, and Midtown, that's why I'm not ashamed of the Bible. For God's written word says that your body is fearfully, reverentially, and wonderfully made. And if you are a Christian, your body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit, God in you. God in you. And you are not your own. And why? <clears throat> because you were bought. And, and do you know the price that was paid for you? The life of God's word made flesh, Jesus, for you. That's how valuable you are. That's what Jesus was willing to pay for your body and the soul within it. So don't porn yourself off by selling yourself short. Don't take less than you're worth, but be satisfied with your creator's best for you and glorify him in your body. Would you rise as we pray and go into a time of response? Let me pray, then I'll give you some directions. And so Father, as I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, weighty topic that for some certainly brings guilt and shame. Uh, for some, as they reflect, they think back, maybe not two years ago, but maybe even to last night or this week. And so I pray that that guilt and shame would not drive people from you, but to you. For your grace is an ocean without boundaries and without depth. No bottom, no shores. And so I pray that this time as we respond, first and foremost, for those that are living in that, 
that they would come to you and receive your grace as depicted in this meal where you gave yourself up for them, for us. And so I pray that this would be a sweet time of, of, of forgiveness and restoration. I also pray that it would be a time of strengthening, a, a time of courage grabbing by way of the spirit in us, not a spirit of timidity, but courage and love and self-control. So I pray, I pray that we would see you, Jesus, as first and foremost. Our hope is in you, Jesus. Change our hearts, Jesus. Stir in us a greater love for you, Jesus. I pray for us as a ministry that we would, we would be people of strong conviction, but also a people who model Jesus and how we interact with people in our, in our city. And that we would see people come to know Jesus, because right now, even though they don't know it, they're choosing brokenness, living sideways lives, not knowing that they need the Son. So help us who know the Son to be bold and courageous to share the Son. And I pray for these things, all of these things in the Son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.